Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Arbitrarium Podcast. Today, our guest is David Perry, who is the Grand Sultan of the Atlantis Caliphate. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about archetypes, something that I don't really know that much about, but I've always found an interesting topic, as I fancy myself as a very bad and um, irregular writer. So, figured knowing more about this kind of thing would be useful on the fact-checking and moderating front, we have Kirky. Hey, yo. What up? So, My street what do you cred know about... is impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about archetypes, Dave? Uh, well, archetypes are... You've got a few sources for types of archetypes, I guess. I mean, a lot of them are sourced from Carl Jung, and you've got a few archetypes there, and then you've got carryover with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all the things that he wrote uh, wrote about. You've got archetypes there. A lot of them are... A lot of them match up pretty well. We're going to stick pretty much to Carl Jung's... The 12 archetypes that it's sort of been boiled down to. So what are they, first off, I guess? Uh, an archetype is... It's sort of a... a an essence of a t of a personality that has arisen over time through many 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 stories. So if you overlay a lot of particularly mythological and ancient stories, you'll you'll come up with common character common characters or character types, and those uh, those common character types have been sort of essentialized as archetypes. Okay. So. Why do you think they've stuck around for so long? I mean, thousands of years. Well, the theory behind, as far as I've been able to tell, behind why they've stuck around for as long as they have is because we all identify with them in one way or another, and many people identify with one or... Uh, either one or just a few of the archetypes more than others, and because they're based in personality types, right? So people... Um, I mean, if you're talking about something like the Big Five personality, the ocean personality wheel, um, most people fall somewhere on that, and those archetypes, they're embodied personalities over time. And so that's why people tend to associate with them as, as well as they do. Um, I think a lot of people, if you ask them, well, I mean, you can go on to like BuzzFeed or anything like that, and you'll find quizzes like which character archetype are you, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then I think the most popular one right now is probably, and has been for a while, is probably the uh, character alignment chart, which isn't specifically archetypes, but it right. falls into broad um, character moralities, right? I mean, that's what that, that's what the alignment is. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it, that spawned up out of uh, tabletop RPGs. Yeah, uh, the, the alignment system. Yeah, the alignment system. It, uh, I, I don't know if that tracks very well, uh, using alignment as kind of a stand-in for archetype. I don't... I'm, it wouldn't I'm be really sure a standard. You could have a lawful evil hero. Yeah. Um, I mean, Elric of Melnibone, for instance. If you're familiar with that character, I'm not, and the audience may not be. So, it'd be good um, God, I can't remember who wrote it. Could you look up who wrote Elric of Melnibone? I think it's sounds French. Moorcock, someone Moorcock. Holly Hoobity Woody. <laughs> we, we, we need a sound yeah. word for that. <laughs> First word they, sounds they, like they. Elric. L or E L R I. That's probably C right. of C H, yeah. You'll get close enough. Of M E L M L M E L N I B O N E. Melnibone? Yes. Yep. Looks like Melnibone. Yeah, Melnibone. But it's pronounced Melnibone. Melnibone. Ah. You're bad at this. Elric of 
Melanie Ball is a fictional character created by English writer Michael Michael Moorcock. Okay. Michael Moorcock. And it's last and, name. And, 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 and it's Mel DeBone. It's got the accent above the oh. E. There's no D. There's an N. Mel DeBone. I'm sorry, Mel DeBone. But it's still Bone. It's Mel not Nibone. Bone. Yeah. Right. Sophisticated. But um, he's, you know he's not a very good guy, uh, Elric. He, uh, he, he uses dark powers to, to support his own physique. He's functionally immortal, though um, very frail. Often does... I mean, we'll call it drugs for for brevity on this. Wait, so he uses magic to maintain his physique, but he's frail. Uh, his what kind of bullshit mage person, is he? That kind of thing. Um, so he's just barely hanging on to life with magic. With magic, and then uses cursed magic, right? Like unicorns, potions, blood. and unguents to boost his own physical capability in combat. And he just kind of goes, kind of out of his way to be a dick at times. Um, he kills all of his friends with a with a sword. Is he the hero of the story? Yes. Okay. He is the hero of this story. I'm getting super <laughs> big, like, Geralt vibes from The Witcher. Oh, yeah. Um, there. I'm guessing there's a reason for that. There is, because... Let me, oh, is this that story? Yes. Okay. So, I'm gonna... Elric of Melnibonet was, uh... He's known as the White Wolf. He tries to be apolitical in his wanderings, but often gets one, um... pulled into political things that he wants no part of. Um, Sounds exactly like The Witcher. Exactly. Uh, the or writer, any RPG for that matter. The writer of The Witcher um, plagiarized Elric. See, so Garrett says plagiarized, but there is an argument that it is a um, active. Um, what's the word? Homage. Homage. Yes, to the story. Which is spelled with an H. Yes, it is. <laughs> Homage. <laughs> yeah, you bloody American. Um, you keep talking. I'm gonna look into this plagiarism thing. Okay. But as an example, I, I think you could have a hero archetype who is not not necessarily lawful good or even on the good spectrum. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the, yeah. The 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 Lima chart and the character archetypes. That's not a a one to one carryover. You can have different mm -hmm. archetypes that bear different moral alignments. It's very useful in in tandem with those two things when you're building a character, just to flesh them out. For a D&D character. No, actually for uh, literary characters, for okay. cartoon characters. I, I teach that to right. students. Right, I hear build a character and I think D&D. Well, Because yeah, that's, that's what right. I'm most familiar with. Conceptualize a character. Hmm, yes. Let's let's pull out the $10 words when a two-cent one will work. Conceptualize is not a $10 word. This is the arbitrarium. We can say what we want. Conceptualize okay. is not a $10 word. You're a $10 See, word. Get out of here. <laughs> I mean, it has more than ten letters. Ooh. Does it? Yes. Hmm. I've never counted them. Twelve. Hmm. Twelve letters. It's that was barely quick. over ten, so... It, I mean, if you round down, it's ten. Right, so where were you going with this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> what did we so, want to talk okay, about? Right. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Thirteen. Um... And re recently, we've, we've always... Or we've kind of striven for, you know, we need to make the most original story. I'm, I'm talking we in society kind mm. of thing. We need to make things as original as possible for whatever reason, but these these archetypes stick up in even these things. Can you write a story without using these archetypes in some way, shape, or form? 
I've not come across a story that completely abandons all of these archetypes, whether willfully or accidentally. Um, and I think the reason for that is because the personality, like, human personality does have its limits, right? I mean, we have a... Maybe your I head. would say a particular set of emotions, although they vary quite a bit and they blend into each other. I mean, it's a co it's complex, but it's still a limited set of emotions. And because we have a limited set of emotions, our personalities have, while they still vary quite a bit, they, there are still limits to them. I mean, when you come across, when you're, when you're talking to your friends, you'll talk about somebody that you met or somebody that you know, and you'll say something along the lines of, well, they're this type of person. Mm -hmm. That's why you do that. Because you run across people that have really, really similar character, or, well, really, really similar personalities, and that's because those you're seeing how those elements of personality blend. Right. And you said you said Jung earlier, you know, Jungian archetypes, mm -hmm. and he wasn't exactly a writer. I mean, fiction. <laughs> no, he wasn't a I fiction mean. writer. That's but he what was I mean. Very prolific writer. Yeah, you know what I meant. He wasn't a fictional writer. No. That's not what I was saying. He paved the way in psychology. Well, I mean... <laughs> Arguably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Freud paved the way for psychology, and then Jung was like, well, we could do better. You did really good, but we, we Let could do better. Let me rephrase. He is... That, no, that's a great way to sum that up. <laughs> Let Jung me was literally just, Let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say he was... The, so... He paved the way for modern, postmodern... Well, not postmodern, but modern psychology. Because he is the second interpretation of yes, I, I there's I agree definitely with you. an argument to be made. Yes, that. it's kind of weird though because people are not to get too deep into this part of it, but people argue about <laughs> people argue about Young's. Um, here's a ten dollar word for you: penchant. Ooh. For uh, for diving into like what might seem like mysticism when he's talking about personality and archetypes and how all these things. The There's a spirituality to it. It's a secular spirituality. Young wasn't particularly religious, but right. Not many yeah. psychologists are. So, so I'm I'm gonna say Young studied studied the classics along with psychology and then kind of merged these together. Or does this spring completely out of the psychological studies. I actually don't know how much of what types of fiction Jung read about. I'm not like a Jung expert or anything like that. I don't know what types of fiction he read about. I know that he was very, very much in, um, not really inspired by, maybe inspired by, we'll use that. Um, he was definitely influenced by Nietzsche more than many other writers. It was one of his major influences. Huh. Nietzsche was inspired by Jung. I... No, no. Oh, no, it's the other way Nietzsche, around. Nietzsche came before Young. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Shows you what don't I know. <laughs> yeah, bro. Looks like I'm I'm the what what is it? I think the, you know you're the the innocent archetype on this one. <laughs> I've known Naive. you too long for that. <laughs> that part of your personality was coming out, maybe. Jesus, that's a good God. that's a good direction we could go at a certain uh -huh. point in the podcast. What archetype do we feel like we most embody, and why? Well, what are the archetypes? Well, let's talk about that, Kirky. Yes, let's. <laughs> Not for a spanter at all. <laughs> are we so, going to begin with the Carl Jung archetypes? Yeah, we're going to okay. stick pretty okay. much to those. And you can, you can be our narrator oh, for this. Oh, right! Hooray! So there, as we just discussed, 12 archetypes um, as defined and described by Carl Jung. Um, first is the innocent. Which I don't know if I like this picture. I want a but better one. I know it's pretty, but it, it, it's good. It's 
I wanted more See, well, you got that. description. You've got this one, which has a lot of description. Oh, description, description? No, yeah, like... Start with the other one, and then we'll dive deeper. I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, you can't see these pictures. Yeah, the, the listeners need to... Where did the baby go? <laughs> I think you closed out. Fat a dollar for every time I said that. You I'd have... Two dollars? Two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, click, click out of it. Sorry, listeners. And then... And we can then, edit this out. <laughs> scroll down. Scroll down. I'm all the way down. What did you do? I did nothing. Oh, you went to a different page. That's oh. what you did. No, I didn't. Camp Coral. Coral! You you closed out of it. See, I think we need for this section... It, Here, there you go. Okay, thank you. YouTube, you know what, honestly... We need the technical difficulties. Yeah. You know, someone <laughs> drunk behind the camera. Honestly, I think it was worth it. So the Innocent um, is a character... Characterizes openness to experience, trust, and honesty. Um, the, the next one we'll go with is the most classic one, the Hero... Um, who embodies strength, courage, stamina, faith, competing against great odds. You know, a hero. Um, I need a hero. I know, that's the only thing I can think of when I hear that. <laughs> um, Sage is our third one, who embodies um, wisdom, intelligence, clarity of thought, and rational decision-making. Um, so for our example we talked about before, this started would be like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm -hmm. or, well, the or sage, Yo I would well, say Yoda. Okay. okay, so Yoda is a better yeah. example. Yes, I agree. Well, before we knew about Yoda. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> if you haven't seen Empire Strikes Back at this point, you're either very young and don't understand what's going on, or shame on you. Yeah, who raised you, wolves? Okay. Innocent or jester. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked about innocent. Um, the fourth one would be lover, um, which is someone who embodies belonging to a group and willingness to sacrifice for others. Uh, fifth is caregiver, someone who is compassionate, um, embodies steadiness, loyalty, and empathy. Number six is a, the citizen, who <laughs> represents fairness, stewardship, and accountability. I hear they have a brigade. <laughs> wow. Wow. Thank you. It went right over my head. Um, oh, did you catch it? <laughs> um, seven is the sovereign. You know, sovereign? the queen. Yeah, not the sovereign. The sovereign. 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 Whatever. The queen, the king. Order, stability, control, and tradition is what they represent. Um, eighth is the magician. Uh, I love that show. Who uh, is full of surprise, powers of perception, intuition, and cleverness. How those cunning little fiends. Ninth is the creator. Which I, and this image I'm looking at right now looks like literally every person I knew in middle school and early high school with the long draped hair over one eye. Lots of emo swoop. Yes, definitely some guy liner going on. But anyway, um, <laughs> they embodied nonconformity, imagination, and sense of aesthetics. Wow. They knew what they were doing. They technically have an aesthetic. I don't know if it's a sense of one. <laughs> Tenth is the explorer. Yeah, he who... looks like a pizza cutter, all edge and no point. <laughs> don't worry, emo kids, I'm one of you. Number ten is the explorer, who is... She uh, says in a denim jacket. I... Fuck off. <laughs> um, I was cold. The ex, the ten, number ten is the explorer, <laughs> who represents independence, testing limits, bravery, and nonconformity. I feel like there's a lot of overlap in creator and that one. There is a okay. surprising amount. Okay, anyway. Eleventh is Jester, who obviously represents humor, originality, and irreverence. A.K.A. me after a couple drinks. And 12 is the rebel 
who is um, represents leadership, risk-taking, individuality, bravery, and honesty, which the rebel can also be seen as a little bit hero-like also. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, and that's one of the things, and that's all of them, but one of the things that we didn't go over that are present here are that each one of these archetypes has a sort of a, a positive side and a negative side. Anytime you're talking about anything having to do with personality or characters or psychology or even philosophy, there's usually like, it could be really good or it could be really bad. Wait you can go too far. You didn't tell me that these were really the horoscopes, just with different names. <gasps> Which one of you is a lover? That's not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do have challenges. I just thought for the audience's sake I would read it quicker. Yeah, because we can talk about the like the, the negative uh, sure. the negative parts of these character archetypes as we get into characters that embody them and mm -hmm. characters that we like. So, we I mean, start? you're the host, so yeah, what do you where want do you want to go first? next? Which one? Yeah, so, Dave, which, which archetype or archetypes do you feel you identify with the most out um, of this list of We'll start with least, so when I say most, it doesn't seem so pretentious. <laughs> um, uh, I don't really see myself all that much as an explorer. Because I'm not... I mean, I'm only brave in very, very specific instances. I My pain tolerance is very low. Um, definitely not much of a, of a rebel. So there are a few in here I definitely don't embody. Not really much on the lover end of things either. I would say I probably am more along the lines of... Probably more along the lines of a sage or maybe a creator. I could see that. Parts of me when I'm writing can definitely come out as the jester. But... I think just because you have a sense of humor doesn't necessarily mean you're the jester. Well, there's a sense of right. originality and irreverence. I mean, I consider myself fairly irrever irreverent, but maybe I'm mistaken on that. Okay. Yeah, creep yeah. around here to take a look at these. Well, while Garrett is mm. looking over them, I I don't know what mine would be. Probably, I guess this kind of goes back to our discussion from last week. Is like, are do you, what is your identity? Is it like a culmination of things, or is there just one thing that's supposed to sound the most like me? Oh well, I mean. The conclusion that we came to is essentially that it's a culmination of things. I mean, this is part of it. Right, so because like... I'm like, I could see myself as equally a part of all of these things. Except maybe... I wouldn't say straight equally. I mean, that, yeah. that would be a hell of a claim. Um, but... I see a lot of magician in myself. Especially the powers of perception. Um... I do sense like I can pick up things, like things that are unspoken, like the the vibe of a room, the aura of something going on, like um, just knowing when someone says a certain word, like hello, if they're upset, you know. But I also naturally want to fall into caregiver for our dear listeners who know that I'm a nurse, and I am compassionate, I am steady and loyal and empathetic. I am all those things for sure. It's hard to pin me down to one thing. I think I'd probably go with caregiver because I still exhibit a lot of those things outside of my work. Um, I would actually yeah. say caregiver definitely, and then I'd probably put sovereign up there to a certain extent. I do like control. Absolutely. You're not wrong there. I totally forgot. I was so busy with the crown imagery that I was like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> you are very orderly. See, I'm, I'm running Order! into... We shall have order. There's nothing 
<clears throat> nothing in the in this list that I I can point to is like no I don't I I'm not that. There's nothing I can't that I see that I don't have any of or very little of. I feel like you definitely can be the rebel. Minus the leadership part, you're you're not really a leader, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just not who you are. Hmm. Hmm. See that? See of the traits, I wouldn't have thought of that one as being the one he's least like. I would say, and I'm gonna say that. Oh, I've sorry, been... that's the one I think he's most like. Oh, okay. That makes the sense. one he's least like. The, oh, yeah, that's yeah, the, the rebel. Least. Oh well, yeah. Oh, sorry. The one you're least like. Yeah. Um. I mean, creator. The only one that I really yeah. have in that one is, well, I, I I don't have much of a sense of aesthetics. No, <laughs> no, no, all. you do not. That, no. But out, out of those. <laughs> Out of the three characteristics there. I, That's probably the one you're least like. Probably. I don't um, over-dramatize I would things. Say, I'm certainly not a perfectionist. I would say along those this, lines... This podcast is <laughs> evidence of that. <laughs> I would say Magician is one that you're fairly low in as well. Yeah, that's not you. I don't know. I have a fair amount of hubris. <laughs> Um, the hubris is part of the challenges. Yeah, so I know. be the negative aspect. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, you cutting fellow, you! But as far as the 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 ones that I most identify with, um, rebel and citizen, maybe citizen, yeah. definitely. And I could see, oh yeah, and I'd, I'd say rebels mostly because one. it guarantees, you know, service and citizenship. I'm all about that. Okay, so when we're looking at those. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on us because they, the audience doesn't right, really they know, know us that the well. We <laughs> they, don't want, they don't want to watch us take a BuzzFeed quiz. Right. I mean, who doesn't? That that right there, the stimulation alone is just... I love how your eyes glazed over when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, we need to, having a stroke. We need to have video of the podcast just to upload my reactions to things. <laughs> <laughs> the plan is to eventually have a video... <laughs> Element. element to it so you can watch it on YouTube. So whenever time Until we get a camera that's inexpensive and good, we're, right. True. we're just going to slap images up on a screen. Anytime someone says something mildly batshit crazy and or out of nowhere, I just want the camera to pan over to me going, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> or me going, I, I'll just mimic, mimic all the Oprah <laughs> memes I know. Like, anyway. So, um, continue. Being the, the, identifying with these archetypes that we do do you find that you you like characters that share your traits or ones that kind of contrast with what you hmm. you, you kind of identify with That's on interesting. this i never really thought about that but as well as a storyteller as a creator i just that made me realize that i've created my main character for the series that i'm working on mallory bash is literally she's the opposite of me so did I just dis display the, the magician cleverness trait by you asking did, that question? You did, just a bit. Just a bit. Huh. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I like creating characters that are more along the, the lines of some of the ones that I, I'm least like. So the hero character, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Mallory couldn't be any more different than me. I mean, she's a 10-year-old girl. She's a heroic character. Um, she's not particularly wise. Not that I'm not saying that I am, but I would say that I'm... Tend she's to also fall 10 years old. She's also 10 years old. Um, <laughs> They're not known she's for got, She's got a temper. <laughs> and she's not particularly conforming. She's a bit of a contrarian. 
Um, that might be one of the things I share with her. I'm not a contrarian, but I, I can be argumentative. I, I will I will take the, 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 the devil's advocate position if I think there's something to it. And I'll do that as often as possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess I'd like to create characters that aren't like me. As a writer, maybe that's a good thing because I have to learn about what those types of people are like. Right. And a big one was temper. I'd like to write characters that aren't like me, but I think... I don't know how to do that, really. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of, kind of characters do you? I tend to write kind of kind of every man. The, someone who... They, they have a, a skill of some sort, but they ne- it doesn't really come in handy most of the time. And then the stories that I write, it just kind of pop. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Now, now I can actually be useful. <laughs> well, um, actually, that is... Go ahead and keep talking. I'm going to... Look, look at something here. Because that's one of the other archetypes that you find in different lists is the everyman. Yeah. It, that was in the first one that we came up with. But, um, yeah, I kind of, I like writing people who are unprepared for things. Isn't that everybody? So, the everyman archetype celebrates the virtue of being the common man, giving people a sense of belonging. And our, no, we don't need to that other part. Let's... Know your archetypes. Here we go. This would be a good one. I think it's the same reference. But the two stories that I'm thinking of are um, the Witch Blaster Chronicles, which basically follows two weirdos who aren't really particularly special in any one way, and then uh, William Callender from the Lawson series, which isn't out yet because I'm still working on it. Let's talk about why you like the Everyman archetype. So... There's some characteristics that are common to all everyman archetypes. This is what it says. It says, They enjoy the simple tastes and pleasures of life. They're democratic, but not necessarily political. They believe in the concept of all for one and one for all. In an effort to create relationships, they tend to lose themselves or compromise. They're easily accepting of people as they are understanding, friendly, and inviting. They enjoy being part of a group and do not like the elite. They're usually comfortable with the status quo. They do not like pretense or and are genuine they support and encourage teamwork and are excited when everyone solves problems together. I think I think that the don't enjoy pretense. I think that's what really hits it on the head for me for the the everyman that that I like. Mm-hmm. They're not to say that they're not complicated or they that they have to be simple as far as characters go, but they're they're as honest with themselves and everyone around them as they possibly can be. I like that. This sounds like a... It's very, easy to write, too. This sounds like <laughs> a very broad description of a hobbit. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a reason for that. I think I think maybe what you're getting at is like there, there's sort of a genuineness about mm-hmm. the everyman, mm-hmm. and the genuineness is that they, 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 they're genuine about the fact that they don't fully understand themselves, but they want to. Right. There's a desire to. And I think that's where you I get... Think that's where he sort of Mary Sue every man. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I can't really say that an every man is necessarily a Mary Sue. Because a Mary Sue is a very specific trope. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm saying you know that what? I'm glad up... you brought up trope. Go on, sorry, I interrupted no, you. I mean, archetypes are. I wrote, trope a, I wrote a question while you were talking because I thought of this. I said, do you think archetypes differ from stereotypes and/or tropes? And if yes, why? Yes. Good question. I think, I think archetypes are a type of trope. Um, 
Well, maybe we have to define a trope before we can argue. What does Merriam Webster Dictionary say? Merriam Webster's Dictionary say? I can't even get it out without laughing. Know. Who's Merrin? Marion? A figure. She said Marin. Trope <laughs> is a figurative or metaphorical use of a word or expression. That's, that's very vague. A, that's a different thing. That's vague to the point of non-functionality. But that is what it is. Um, but a trope. There we a go. A common or overused theme or device. A cliche. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a cliche, but a common. All or, cliches are tropes. Not all tropes are cliches. Yeah. A phrase or verse added as an embellishment or interpretation. No, so we don't want that one. Yeah, that second one's probably the best. A common or overused theme or device. That's the closest. Yeah. yeah. So what? How does that differ from a stereotype? So something conforming to a fixed or general pattern is a stereotype. Right. Yeah. A thing which conforms to it. You know, blondes so, being stupid, that's that's a stereotype. Yeah. So I feel like... Actually, I feel like what we think of as stereotypes are actually cliches. Well, actually, maybe this is... A, a They're not mutually exclusive. It. No. Okay. Maybe a good way to think about it is that... Um, blondes being dumb is a stereotype, but a dumb blonde is a, is a trope. Mm-hmm. The, oh. assumption, the assumption that, okay. bl that blondes are dumb would be a stereotype, but... A character who is blonde and is dumb would be a trope. Right. I see. A stereotypical trope. Yes. But not in and of itself a stereotype. So the stereotype... Stereotypes are overly simplistic. Yeah. Okay. And then the trope is like casting the overly simplistic idea. The trope would just be the repetition of it to the point that people can identify it. Yeah, but right. you, you kind of need tropes. Yeah. Especially in visual media. Okay, so like the trope that like in film um, <laughs> it seems like uh, uh, I, can't, I can't talk today. Well, the best um, actors who are black tend to be nominated for portraying like black only like like strife. Like, like the, the, the slave slavery story, yeah. or like through the Civil War yeah. or, civil, or civil rights movement and stuff Glory. like that. That is a huge trope with the Academy and black actors and acting. Mm. The trope of that would be, I don't know if you could call it. I, I, would, like I would say it's a trope. The, if like you experience like that same like story over and over again, and it's constantly the one that's recognized, but not other that stories. would be a trope in reference to film in general that yes, blacks yes. who win Oscars tend yes. to be, it tends to be because they're in movies about slavery. Or yes. Something that, like that that's what I was. Yeah. That Thank would be, you. that would be a, a, a trope of filmmaking. Correct. My, my you, favorite example of a trope and at least in visual media is a leather jacket. Yeah. Being tough. Cause yeah, you see someone wearing a leather jacket. You immediately think they're kind of a rebel. They're, they're going to be tough. They're, they might nece not necessarily be smart, but they're going to have street smarts about them because they're wearing a leather jacket. It's the first thing you see about the character, and you're already making these assumptions. Right. So the that, visual cues for what type of right. character they are. Yeah. So that, that's why I love the leather jacket as a trope. I love the leather jacket, but for very different reasons. As a trope. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Get your kinks out of here. <laughs> This is a family-friendly show, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> a 
I think we just graduated. I, in my head, I just saw the the rating on the podcast. Just, bing! Rated O for Oh Dear God. So, yeah. Archetypes are tropes given personality. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And if you're... In order to, to tell a story efficiently, you kind of need to have these archetypes. Because you need to have tropes to tell a story with... Just kind of in general. And it was, it's okay. interesting because a lot of good stories don't have archetypes in mind specifically. It's just that that's one of the things that Campbell was about. He was like, well, look, people didn't do this necessarily intentionally. They mm -hmm. just kept coming up. Right. There's something like fundamental, fundamentally sociological about these archetypes. So you can't consciously not do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You were going to say something. I was going to say something. But there's popping sounds, and I'm I'm a scared. Um, I think it's what just I, a mouse racking a shotgun. Don't oh worry about no, it. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! No! Well, the no, mouse no, is no. racking for all my shotguns. TikTok people out there. Whoop! Um, He's about to you know give himself a Cobain facial. <laughs> it's funny because he shot himself in the face, With and that's how he died. <laughs> so on on Merriam-Webster's website that I can see that the viewer cannot it. Underneath the definition for trope, it says um, the usual horror movie trope. So that's, I think, a great example then. So like that, the protagonist or the lead major character is usually a young single female who um, isn't understood and wants to be accepted by her group of friends. She's not really interested in sex, but she is sexy for some reason. Yeah, she's, she's yes. the one that survives. Sexy virgin. If she survives, she is abstained from sex. <laughs> right, right. And... Um, the She's a smart, person. cunning one that can like think of how to escape quickly. Has some kind of deep emotional trauma in her past. Looking at you, Sydney Prescott from Scream. I mean, like. That's why I love Cabin in the Woods. See, I do love that. Cabin in the Woods. I have not is, seen Cabin oh, in the Woods. It's I've fantastic. heard it's a nice. It is. It's a nice construction of, yeah. of of horror movie tropes. Yes. But then, like, I, then I'm trying to differentiate the trope from the stereotype. So, like, I was trying. I thought I had an aha moment, but it's not. Like, I think the stereotype. Would be that. No epiphany for you. That. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the stereotype would be, but the trope in horror movies is that the black guy dies first. A trope, yes. A. And that's not just in horror movies. A trope. That's oh, just okay. Kinda, yes. I was being pretentious. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Ah. I was like, is that like atrophy? <laughs> My brain. I goes, think we've gotten there with the trope. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm glad that I had a chance to ask that question because I was afraid I was going to get lost in the shuffle. The, the Cupid Shuffle. Oh, hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. Be careful. Be careful. No. <laughs> we are at 35 minutes currently. I can edit that out if mm -hmm. we want to do it. Up yeah. There. So we want to do a. Uh, we going for. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a commercial break. All right. So now we're going for a commercial break. Uh, now a word from our sponsors. Hmm. Are you looking to benefit from a brief coma without all the risks of major surgery? Does warm milk make your heart race? Curious about suicide but unwilling to commit? Then try Dr. Insomnia's lethargy drink. Turn down for all. What a wonderful sponsor to have. I recommend you seek them out if you have your own project. So, from the... Uh, titles of each one of these archetypes they just reading them you can kind of figure out what you know what are their strengths 
and we describe them by their strengths. But each one of these also has a weakness, as Dave pointed out earlier. And how that's going to shape the story and, and Jung, how it's going to shape uh, your, your individual weaknesses in your own psychology. So, for instance, if you um, kind of identify as the, the jester, you, you're probably not going to be taken that seriously even when you're trying to be serious. Mm. That's going to be a challenge you're going to run into. And you see that running into with various literary characters like uh, Mercutio. Oh, Mer mm. Mercutio. You know, he, he died no, because no one took oh. him seriously <laughs> when he was gravely wounded. Mercutio. They just thought he kept throwing out jokes when, well, to be honest, he kind of was, even though he was bleeding out. So each one of these things has a... He committed to the archetype till the very end. Mm. That is dedication. That is an actor. Well, the, the character, many people who played Mercutio, probably <laughs> unsuccessfully as well. <laughs> he took it a little too literally with his method acting. He played it very well, but only the once. <laughs> oh, I did that pleasure. in one take. Oh. Oh. Rest in peace. I said what we were all thinking. I actually wasn't. I was oh. just thinking of some guy in community theater, like, I'm going for it. This is going to be my big break. <laughs> Fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What does that mean to play us out? <laughs> he, he really killed it on opening night. <laughs> <laughs> that one was for you, Anthony. <laughs> God. So we're talking about the the weaknesses of these archetypes, just to try to circle back from our circle jerk of comedy. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I would actually argue that most of these characters are, now when we talk about them, we define them by their their strengths, but they're actually, narratively, they're more defined by their weaknesses. Right. Mm. Because they're useless if we, you don't explore their weaknesses. Otherwise you have a Mary Sue. Yeah. You've got nothing. And the hero is an interesting archetype when it comes to that because the hero is absolutely defined by their weaknesses. The hero doesn't have a journey if he doesn't or she doesn't have weaknesses. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We could, like totally relate this to comics uh, comic books especially like you know you come for the the superhero the action poo poo pow but like people were more interested in what peter parker was going through as a person like his what made him human the weaknesses are what make the characters well human so what are peter parker's weaknesses kirky <laughs> um peter parker really cared cares about his family and his friends and um you know, how he's going to be successful in school and in life. Like, to him, Spider-Man is just something he can do. Like, not like a side job, but, like, it's not what defines him. It's weird. Peter Parker is really the superhero. Spider-Man is really the... The... I don't know. He's not the main character, I would argue. See, what I found interesting about what Kirky just said was the weaknesses are the things that make you human. That kind of intrinsically tying weakness to human. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's anywhere to go from that, but I found it kind of kind of interesting. I'd never thought about it like that before. Well, yeah, I mean, we could think about that in terms of like who is the the who is the stereotype of of of, of comic book heroes that ha doesn't have enough weaknesses, if any, except uh, that, for the be, one that'd be Superman, <laughs> right? Yeah. Who just I mean, has kryptonite. That's that? And that was a, that was an afterthought, right? Yeah, the and the kryptonite has become a cliche, right? You know, if 
It's the Deus Ex Machina of superheroes, like, right? Like you know, White Claws or Kirkies. Kryptonite on Listen, that Listen, they've upgraded tonight from a, a White Claw to a Jose Cuervo Playa Mar. When you want to look like a thirsty white bitch who with slight elegance. How much are they paying you? <laughs> Damn it, if I can get a sponsor. Why are they paying us? Yeah, if I get a sponsorship from any kind of tequila brand, ayo, hit your girl up. <laughs> I am currently drinking Roku Gin. <laughs> I'm currently drinking in my own sadness. It is aesthetically Japanese. Is there any way to drink besides your own sadness? <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> I'm sure. But anyway, so... Yeah, um... <laughs> you, it, it's kind of... I also kind of think that it, it's easy to... When going to the, the weakness and humanity, it's, it's really easy to point that out because... At least in our day-to-day lives, our, our weaknesses are kind of glaring. We're wired to see weaknesses. Right. We're wired to see bad things. Um, because, as Peterson has mentioned, you can only be so happy, but you could be dead. <laughs> yeah, and I've said that for years. <laughs> <laughs> things could always be worse. You could be dead. I've been saying that since high school. Which was long, long ago. It seems. I, I guess what I meant by like the weaknesses make them human is that it, it's relatable, right? Like you, you can't invest in a story or an archetype or like Luke Skywalker, Star Wars. Is we've used that as an example. If if the characters aren't relatable to you, it doesn't matter that's in space and that you know there's uh, it's science fiction and that there are elaborate costumes and names of everything. It's the it's the quality of the story and the the trials and tribulations that happen to the, the people we care about, right? That's what connects us all. Well, it's... We're getting to a delicate, a, a delicate subject when it comes to learning how to write stories here. And it's that you... People don't like to look at stories as, especially now, they don't like to look at stories as, well, you need to be telling some kind of moral, right? We don't, mm. we're, we're at a point in society where we don't really like the idea of somebody preaching to us. But at the same time... People aren't interested in the story unless they learn something from it. That's what happens when... I mean, that's the reason why our characters need to have weaknesses. Because if, if we have nothing to learn from the characters, we don't care. And if we, need, if we want to learn something from a character, then there is sort of... A, a, at the very least, an emergent moral of the story. Or at least a moral of the character's arc. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's why people had a lot of problems with Superman for so long, is because he's... I mean, what the hell does Superman have to learn? What some does Superman the, learn? More, I'm not a comic book guy. I've not read a lot of them. The only comic book, as far as Superman comic that I've read, is Red Sun, because I, I love alternate history, regardless of whether it's my own or not. Um, you mean Pinko Kami Superman? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, who, instead of truth, justice, and the American way, it was... Uh, St communism, Stalin, and the expansion of the Warsaw Pact. Mm. <laughs> that is quite antithetical. Yeah. Yeah, but Batman looked super cool in that. He did. Batman. He had the Yashanka like on. Yeah. It's, I don't know why he was in Siberia, but whatever. <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. Um, but the, the It's really cute that he thinks comics still cost a dollar. <laughs> like, that was what that that was was I That was a Robocop. Yeah, that was a Robocop reference. reference. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Hi, my name's Kirky, and I don't get that reference on this episode of the Arbitrarian Podcast. It's Kirky's best uh, impression of Kermit the Frog. That really sadly oh. is. <laughs> ah, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> um, 
I guess my question is then, based on your um, tying in that the whole point of a story is, a, it used to be that there was a moral, right? Because there like, still is. We just try to bury it. In true. The okay. In the so narrative. I guess my question is, mm, I lost it. <laughs> what I when you were talking about you know story and things happening to these characters that we care about, it's those weaknesses that make us care about them. Because the story, regardless of what happens. I mean, if you have good good characters and you care about those characters and you're invested in them, right? You've at least got that, and that's about three quarters of the battle. Well, why do we care about the weaknesses? Why do the weaknesses make us so interested in the character? Because I think we can see them in ourselves. For sure, that's a big part of it. That's, yeah, I absolutely. think that's the biggest part of it. Like Peter Parker being worried about, like, obviously he wants to protect his neighborhood from crim- criminal activity. But he still like comes home and is really stressed out about if he's going to have enough time and sleep to finish his or study for his calculus final or whatever. I know it seems arbitrary to us now. I think you're projecting. I'm not projecting <laughs> because we are not in high school nor are interested in calculus if we ever were. But we can all relate to feeling like we don't have enough time to prepare for something and feeling overwhelmed by that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, the, mm-hmm. I think the identify the identifiability of the character is half of it. Almost precisely half of it. I right? think the like, other half of it is, well, it's okay to identify with the character. That's a really, really good thing. But the other part of that is, if you once you identify with the character, what you're looking for is how are they going to fix this problem that I, I that I can recognize. Right, but that's that's more the story. Yeah. On, on that, I'm talking about the you know the initial investment of the character. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd say the weaknesses of that character make us invested in them mm. more than anything else. Sure. Maybe the. You know, if they have some sort of special... That's the hook. Right. But the sinker is the, the weakness. Right. So the hook what, what is really like the, reels you in. Right. To use a, a fishing analogy. Sure. I get it. I fish. In case, that, in, in case that wasn't clear to you, that was, in fact, a fishing analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Did the fish take the bait? We'll find out in next week's episode. We had it fact-checked. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess... I have a question then mm-hmm. for you, Garrett. Since this oh, is God. your well, this is your this is your topic. So I, you and have, I admitted at the start I don't know much about it. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay not no, to know. It's not. Yeah. It wouldn't be infinite. And learning is half the battle. There's a word for that, but I have forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it. Wait a minute. I'll fi- I'll figure it. It's um, a tricky. Uh, ask your question. <laughs> My question is: So there are archetypes that we know of for stories, and we, we were talking um, before we started the podcast recording about like a hero and an anti-hero like there is now becoming like an anti-hero movement right like of uh, the protagonist is not necessarily someone you cheer for or want to cheer for maybe isn't necessarily good or bad so my question is is there like an anti-archetype are we creating are there now becoming archetypes that are a little uh, non-conformative not old-fashioned they have an archetype for that they did well (laughs) (laughs) exactly are there um so, like, uh, well, I often think of comic book characters, but there are some comic book characters that are nuanced, and uh, there really isn't a sense of morality there. Marvel's good at that. That's kind Marvel of is Marvel. very good at that. The first one went, what popped in my head was the Punisher. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is a great example. But Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's, you're going to have, um, you know, hero and anti-hero and villain and anti-villain, but those, those are... More roles in the story, not so much a character archetype. Because, I mean, 
I suppose with an anti-hero, and I'm just spitballing here, um, you know, if we look at Frank Castle, the Punisher, he, he fits somewhere on this archetype thing. But an anti-hero, it's more about the motivation as to why they're doing something than their actual personality, I guess. Is what I'm going with here. Did that make it's any more sense? More about their motivation. Salad? More about their motivation than their personality. Right. Well, with Frank Castle, I can see that. I can see why you would think that because his motivation. Now, he, Frank Castle is an interesting character because he is a person who lies to himself almost every moment of every day. It's true as well. Um, Frank Castle's whole thing is, you know, what what is the quote? It's it's not, it's not revenge. It's punishment. It's like mm. no, it's revenge. Mm. It's always been revenge. That was the catalyst, was revenge. It doesn't matter what he tells himself, it's still revenge. And it continues to be revenge because the revenge didn't do what he thought it would do. So he gave it a different name and expected it to change things, and it didn't. <laughs> Polymathy, by the way, is the word I was looking for. That is a Wanting to be infinite? Wanting to uh, know everything. The desire to know everything, or... The actuality of knowing everything. Usually it's in reference to a character who wants to know everything. Okay. Polymathy. What are I you looking heard, up, Kurt? I've heard someone described nice. as a polymath. Oh, no, sorry. Not sorry. Polymathy. Damn it. Let me see this for a second. <laughs> yeah, see, that's what polymath... That's what that's what a polymath actually is. <clears throat> I got the word wrong. Yeah. Hang on. Continue talking so the audience has something to listen to. Right. Words. <laughs> there. Yeah, polymathy is somebody who takes disparate ideas and is able to bring them together. Okay. Um, so going back, yeah, I. With an anti-hero, they they have. You know their archetype qualities, but I'd say their their strengths outweigh their qualities. But and it also depends on how it's used in the story. That defines whether or not they're a hero, anti-hero, villain, anti-villain. Hmm. Okay. Is it possible to write a story... Well, Dave looks like he wants to say something. Oh, oh no, I'm just going to real quick intercut here. Pantomath. Pantomath is the word I was looking for. A person who wants to know or knows everything. Back to the topic at hand. <laughs> I was going to ask, is it possible to write a story without using archetypes? I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. Now I Well, and not make it a good story. <laughs> I'm reticent to ever use absolutes. But if I, I've not been able to think of a character that doesn't fit one of those or multiple mm. archetypes. This leads into something another question I had about archetypes on this. What successful subversions of archetypes have you seen? Generally, when you're subverting an archetype, all you're really doing is leading the audience to believe that the character is one archetype and then revealing that they're actually another. So, uh, like Righteous Kill? Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah. But you're not really subverting the archetypes themselves. You're just you know, playfully misleading. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the real question that we're trying to figure out is, is there a character that doesn't fit one of these archetypes? I or a character that fits all of them. <laughs> all of them? <laughs> Oof. I don't know. I definitely can't think of a character that doesn't fit any of them. 
because the archetypes span the personality wheel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's... I can't think of... You'd have to be outside of the human personality wheel in order to not be any of these archetypes. I'm trying to think... I can think of really good examples for a lot of these, but I'm having a really hard time thinking of a common popular culture reference to, like, a citizen. Let me read it again real quick, just to be... Citizen. Fairness, stewardship, and accountability. The challenges are righteousness and recklessness. Uh, Johnny Rico. Starship Troopers. Mm, see, I'm not as familiar with that particular character. To a T. Well, there you go. <laughs> a, a more common popular culture reference. How about that? That's actually fairly common for science fiction, so I'll give you that. Okay. But... I meant, like, mainstream. More so. <laughs> Well, now you're asking me to comment on things that I don't know a lot about. <laughs> For sci-fi, that actually is... You brought a knife to a gunfight, bitch. <laughs> Who said this was a fight? I thought this was just a, a friendly discussion. How are playing Pinochle? <laughs> Jax. We play Jax here. All right. Let me go get my broadsword. <laughs> so, a really common citizen, right? So, in pop culture, fairness, stewardship, accountability... Oh. But the challenges are righteousness and recklessness. That okay. makes it difficult. I, okay, so I get because this Because if now. you're just looking at the positive characteristics, I mean, Ron Weasley would fall into that. But then you, he doesn't fall into the cha- the challenges. I, I mean, would Batman. Say, I would say book one, yes. Book Ron. Movie Ron, no. Hmm. I agree with you there. Uh, I thought of, like, okay, so I think a good example of a citizen would be um, the... All I can think of right now is, like, any time Harrison Ford has been wronged in the movie when he plays, like, a police officer or a lawyer or something like that. Do you mean Harrison Ford? Yes, Harrison Ford. Air Force One? Okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking that, You killed my wife! Give me back my family. Yes. Any man who swings from high-rises probably has a pretty good reckless streak through him. True. And uh, he is rather righteous to to an extreme he that. does have a, a, a. He believes in fairness. That's for sure. He's definitely very um, lawful. Stewardship. I mean, that's what he's doing for Gotham. That's his True. way of doing it. And accountability. That's the same thing. It's okay. you know, you do this thing, you're gonna get, you're gonna get. There's gonna be justice. Okay. Yeah, and does does he hold himself accountable? That that's the question. That's part of it. I think that's a big challenge for Batman. I think he tries to, but doesn't always succeed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably one of his biggest challenges, one of his biggest internal conflicts, because he knows that he's a vigilante, and there's part of him that resents himself for that. Depending on which Batman. Well, yeah. <laughs> Adam West Batman was not concerned. No. <laughs> the only thing Adam Adam West Batman was concerned about was how to get rid of a bomb. <laughs> Or, or, or get him, a, my favorite days. one, get a shark off the bat helicopter. <laughs> well, no, he figured that out. You need the shark yeah. repellent spray. Right, and that, that's... Why is that <laughs> on the helicopter? <laughs> Under what situation? Obviously that one. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a few good examples of citizen archetypes. Hmm. I wonder if you can have... A plot of a film or television. Well, television is a bad example because television usually you can build character over time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why television is so appealing. But with film, I think I think you could have archetypes, or you could make a plot without archetypes if you don't give your characters any substance. 
So a bad story. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I've seen plenty of really good films where a plot um, unfolds, but you don't really know anything about the characters, like personality-wise, their role. I, you're looking at me and like you I'm enjoyed crazy. this story. Yeah. Wait, no, no. I think she. I think she has a point on that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, most war movies are like that. Yes. Exa- thank you. I'm trying to think of things where like there's a clear where... conflict, but. There is no sense of like differentiating any other person from another person. There's nothing that makes anyone stand out or special. It gives them their own characteristics right. or challenge. It's just like a a general human pathos moment. Oh, you mean the Everyman? Yeah, which is not technically one of Carl Jung's, but yes. But you, we we did discuss well, we're that. Stepping- we're stepping back and we're we're looking at humanity as its own character. Okay, okay. Ooh, that could be the thirteenth archetype. That's the Everyman. It's already one. Of them. Uh, no, it's yeah. not, well, exactly it's not exactly one exactly of them, but yes. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> serious thirteenth flavor. But of yes, that that is a great example then. Because, Unlocked by Everclear. Because there are plenty of stories I've read or seen that you don't really know much about the character, but you definitely have that. Um, connection of empathy for sure right. those stories are, are very much um event driven mm-hmm. um, yes as, as yes. an example the Biopics. i can't even remember the guy's name the the fighter pilot from dunkirk yeah oh, yeah, yeah you don't really you you hear his last name which i can't remember i wouldn't lump a biopic you never that. learn his first name and all you really see is what he does um which is flying around in a plane at, at dunkirk that's that that's what he does. He just does what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of hard to figure out an archetype on one dogfight. Well, one other thing we might actually think about when we're talking about stories in, in those terms is that we we the writer is allowing the viewer to overlay the hero archetype onto those characters. I, it, it's like the the faceless, something like that. We sort of apply the archetype. Specifically, we apply the hero archetype to that character because we're just used to the hero being, okay, this is our main character. Okay, they're the hero. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So we expect them to just sort of go through the general challenges and, and overcome them in some way and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Slave Dragon, take that off the list. <laughs> Interesting. But uh, yeah, I think use the Cyclops. Blip, there it is. The closest I think you could get, as far as big mo- would be war movies, mm-hmm. um, just because everyone is kind of the everyman, unless mm-hmm. for whatever reason it the the plot focuses on one person. It's one reason I love Fury, is because it it doesn't really you know what happens. It, it's more about the crew of the tank and how fucked up they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you get different personalities. Yeah. Those. Yeah, the, they each have their own little archetype. Yeah. Um. God, I love that movie. I want to watch great movie. it again. Have you seen Have you seen Fury? No. It's got Brad Pitt. It's a great movie. Great movie. It also has Shia LaBeouf. So. But oh God, he, he does good. He does he good. Does good. <laughs> I feel like we have to qualify that. It's actually a good movie, <laughs> despite Shia LaBeouf. But Shia LaBeouf's actually good in it. Yeah. He, I... He's in a role that works for overacting. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say that. Um, to the having a plot without any archetypes the only thing I can think of that kind of fits that is um, sometimes like psychological thrillers or um, hold on you're going to have to explain that 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 you're going to have to expl
I don't want to say scary. Don't say or. You gotta you gotta keep okay. going with this. Okay. I love that we just kind of okay. looked at there, each other. There is a movie I'm thinking of. Uh, you probably have never seen it. It's called Hush. Um, it is available on Netflix, I think. But it's about a woman who's deaf. Who um, it starts out just her like cooking dinner in her home, trying to cook, realizing she can't cook, and like having a friendly chat with her neighbor who comes over, trying to like um, learn sign language with her and be neighborly and blah blah blah. And then it quickly turns into a man um, trying to invade her home, cut her power, and kill her. But there's like, but there's no, there's like a sense of good and bad, but there's nothing definitive about either character. One is trying to survive and one's trying to kill. Predator prey thing. There's no, there, you feel emotionally like connected to it because you don't want to die and you feel like scared with her. But there's nothing definite, like striking about. Like, I can't think of one of these things that would describe her except maybe cunning. But I wouldn't call her a magician. <laughs> you know? Like, I, I guess... Tell us about I the guess... character. Tell us about her. What's she like? Well, for one, she doesn't talk because she is deaf. But what she does... Like, the only uh, language she exhibits in the film is within the first, I think, ten minutes with her neighbor. And then most of it after that is her thinking of ways to escape or... Uh, uh, maim him or or get out or whatever. Um, so it's played based off of just her face and her actions, which is interesting. I think that question for was a bit loaded. I know. I'm going to be honest. Based on that description, it doesn't actually sound like a good movie, but I can see why you'd be compelled by it just to keep watching to see what happens. But, I mean, you're, you're not going to look at it, like, without knowing... Like, if you're going to focus on a character in a movie, because you're fo definitely focused on that character, those two characters, then you generally you want to know something about it. And if you don't, the movie is relying on the gimmick of its structure to get you to keep watching. And well, the structure is predator-prey. That's the gimmick. Right. Like, even with the, the villain, if you will, the, the, the predator... You don't get a sense of what's his motivation. You don't get a sense of why he's doing anything or even anything about his personality. You just get this sense that he really wants you dead. And that in itself is terrifying. But um, you're right. The whole survival, the need to survive, the, that biological drive in all of us, I think, is what keeps you connected. So maybe that does connect back to every man, which basically debunks my own point. Ugh! But, but... Well, yeah, because in that situation, I think what's keeping you watching is that you're putting yourself in the place of the girl. Yeah, you're yeah. You're, you're applying your own archetype to her. Yeah. It's why, I, it's, it's why I can't watch... watch it's most, common with horror movies. Yeah, why, why I can't watch most horror movies. I like that one, though, because it is different. There is no, like... It's simply her trapped in her house trying to figure out how to get away from him. I like it. I've seen it a couple times. I've enjoyed it. And it's unique in that... We don't know what it's like for those who are not deaf to have to figure out a way to communicate or keep tabs on someone who's trying to actively kill you without using one of your senses. Like she has to. That's a whole nother challenge. Hmm. Yeah, she can't hear her moving through the house. Yeah. But, um... Matter of fact, spoiler if you plan on seeing the movie. Spoiler alert! 
um, within the first like ten minutes, like the whole that's how you know he's there is her friend neighbor is banging on the door for her to see her, and she can't she doesn't sense this the banging or anything. There's no she's there, so it's terrifying for the audience to watch her friend literally get gutted in front of her, and she doesn't see it, doesn't hear it, mm. and classic Hitchcock Hitchcockian suspense. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Hitchcock is all about sensory deprivation. Yeah, <laughs> he really is. He's also a, he was also a terrifying, horrible human being, but that's neither the point. Yeah, he he. What did he say about actors? They should be treated like sheep, something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, they're a vehicle for his story. That's it. Ugh. <laughs> Barf. Wait, and he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you fast forward a little bit to Kubrick and uh, Shelley. Shelley Long. Oh, good God. That man or put her through Shelley, hell. Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Yeah, not Shelley Long. Shelley Long was in Cheers. I didn't realize yeah. Cheers was the plot of <laughs> The Shining. <laughs> that would have made... No, Shelley, Shelley Duvall when, was definitely when the, better for that than Shelley Long. When the doors open up. <laughs> Where everybody is <laughs> 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 The blood is pouring out. You're like, oh, dear God. Oh, God. The scene in the, oh, the, scene in the, the, the hotel bar would be so much... <laughs> scene except you know jack torrance is sitting there and just at the corner of the table it's norm you know raising his, his beer and you know the bartender is Sam. Norm! <laughs> wow uh, we gotta get in the movie maker and make that 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 would be great <laughs> <laughs> write that down uh oh, alcoholism isn't so bad jack <laughs> <laughs> keeps me away from my wife <laughs> All right, I, yeah. I'm so I think I, I've I think, never seen that crossover. The, the I, I can't get into most horror movies just because, uh, particularly slasher flicks. Mm. Just no. To be fair, that subsection of a genre has been overdone. It wasn't good when they did it the first time, though. No, I, that's why I like Scream because there's that whole tongue-in-cheek vibe of it, like where it feels like it's kind of mocking it, even though being a part of it. I mean, maybe a little bit. I only watched it because Nev Campbell is super damn hot. <laughs> but uh, someone I'm not comes into my house <laughs> to try and kill me. Well, you know, I mean, they got to deal with me. They got to deal with my wife, and we're both armed to the teeth. My and wife. <laughs> <laughs> so it 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 take a little bit of doing. It'd be more like a Tom Clancy movie than a slasher film to take me out. Mm. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, putting myself in there, it's just no, this is stupid. Yeah. Why are we hiding in the in the, in the shed full of rusty chainsaws? I don't know. <laughs> well, see that. Okay, there's an interesting thing to talk about. Because the reason that you don't like horror movies, I think, is the same reason that uh, the people who like horror movies like that like them. It's because for you, watching somebody be that fucking stupid is completely disinteresting. For a lot of people, to watch somebody that fucking stupid that they can criticize for two hours is appealing. It is appealing. I also like the... Um, so there's like the cliche tropes that we talked about of horror films, but then there's also, like I said, there's like sub-genre in the genre itself. Like there's um, horror films about like possession and demons and... And, you know, there's just ones based on ghosts, and there's ones like The Shining is a good example of a supernatural thriller, but has been de- deemed a horror film, right? 
because it's a it's it, it's it's a psychological supernatural thriller. I don't know. If yeah, it, I could. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. So, right. but it redefined the filmmaking aspect of horror film. What I could agree with Co- that. Cooper did. Yeah, for sure. I'm not a, a, a horror scholar. I have to get one of my. I old so co- I I think co-workers. a good horror movie versus a bad horror movie is one that completely subverts the tropes. And makes you go. I don't know where this does is going. it mean something? Right. That's the way I look at there, most movies, but definitely horror movies in general. If I'm thinking, is this worth watching? There is one. There is one horror movie that I do quite like. Alien. That's a sci-fi movie, though. It's a sci-fi horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It fits it, a lot. Of that's it. a horror it's, movie before yeah. it's a sci-fi movie. Aliens two freaked me the fuck out when I was a kid. See, aliens. It's not yes, alien. Sorry, it's that's aliens. What I, I know. I know. I just. The extra S makes all the difference. Actually. Usually. <laughs> that's, that's, I actually. And uh, Aliens 2. I actually think ready. Aliens ruined That is not going to come Alien. across on the recording at all. It's going to sound like. <laughs> um, bullshit. I, I, I think Aliens, the one that everyone really loves and knows, kind of ruined the Alien franchise. How with, so? With the second movie. Here comes the pedantic bullshit. <laughs> Coming from you. I know. The irony wasn't lost on me. But you Continue. Pres- you presenting that argument to two people that are quite knowledgeable in film is hilarious to us. Go on. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> in, the first, in the first movie, Alien, the xenomorph itself is an unstoppable force of nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't fuck with mom. We don't know that it's mom at that point. Well, I guess That's, we kind of do. Yeah. But not to the level we find out later. Right. It's, Continue. It's, it's not a queen. Um, we didn't know what this thing was capable of. We There was so much unknowns regarding the Xenomorph. In Aliens, we see exactly what kind of punishment they can take. We know they can be killed. And that, that it Thanks takes a lot of the horror yeah. away from the critter itself. Yeah. So that's why I think um, Aliens, despite being the more successful film kind of ruined the franchise because mm. from that point forward it was like well just kill it <laughs> yeah once it can be killed if it can bleed it can die so your problem right. with the i mean in the first one if the fucking flamethrower didn't do the job mm-hmm. but then we see the flamethrowers do work you just have to have the right kind of flamethrower speaking of alien and archetypes whip whip devouring mother alert <laughs> Well, we'll get into that after this commercial break. (laughs) This episode brought to you by Platonic Phonics. After a hard day of handling the rock hard, let us soften the blow with trite small talk. Platonic Phonics, but no conversations for erotic people. And welcome back. You know, send our sponsors some love. They... They help out with the show. So we're going to get into more psychological archetypes, and I'd say they they also relate to narratives and storytelling in their own way. Um, Dave mentioned the devouring mother, I believe, is a Jungian archetype. Yeah, yeah, but it's definitely actually that might that might be. I actually think that one finds its uh, its origins in Freud rather than Jung. Now Jung accepted it and, and continued it, if I'm not mistaken. I can't fact check myself at the moment, but I believe um, I believe Freud actually started with the devouring mother archetype. And actually, I know for a fact he did because that's the Oedipus complex. That's part of the Oedipus complex. 
Well, didn't Oedipus start it? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Sure. Uh, oh. I, <laughs> Did he that, was, mother that was needlessly <laughs> dismissive. I apologize. There once was a like Oedipus Rex. Dear listeners, you cannot see my face, but I just literally was like, I guess we're going there. <laughs> I can't yeah, hear so. Oedipus without thinking of the Tom Lehrer song. Well, yeah. <laughs> because he loved his mother. <laughs> yeah, so the... Um, <laughs> Face. Yes, my thoughts exactly. But oh, um, the producer is checking you know, in. Our producer is meowing once again, demanding food, and apparently racism. Uh, yeah. He. I. I he's we'll an, have to translate. He's it from an French. ethnic nationalist of some type, but I just don't know what kind. <laughs> A French terrorist. Damn Micronesian racist. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about. Uh, archetypes. Now we're getting more into psychological archetypes than, than strictly literary archetypes or storytelling archetypes. And we're talking about the devouring mother. It was actually identified by Carl Jung. Really? Mm -hmm. I thought that was a, started as a Freudian thing. Hey, I got fact-checked and it worked out. You did get fact-checked and it did work out. So that is a strictly Jungian thing that did not start with Freud. You've earned now your pay, Kirky. Good job. And knowing is half the battle. I will continue to use that slogan until someone tells me to stop. The other half is headshots. Okay. I've already had both of mine, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so we're talking about the... We just keep... We just, the, the train just keeps getting derailed. I okay. like it, but we, we are doing an actual podcast, so we should probably probably do stuff. Stay on track. <laughs> the Devouring Mother is a Jungian, uh, Jungian archetype that is... I, I don't... Um, a mom eating donuts on her couch? No, no, no. Close, but no cigar. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but in this case it's not. <laughs> it's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's really not. Um, Sorry. <laughs> the devouring mother archetype is the... Um, whenever somebody says the devouring mother archetype, I do think of a very specific character, and it's weirdly modern. Waterboy. His mother is literally a comedic, perfectly boiled-down version of the Devouring Mother archetype. The Devouring Mother archetype is the mother who is so intent on protecting her children from anything that could possibly be dangerous to them that it makes them useless. They can't... They never develop. They never become... A person that can contend with reality so when they do finally like when the mother dies or something like that happens and they're left to their own devices these children they can't handle reality like that's the problem with the devouring mother that's why it that's why the devouring mother is the negative archetype the negative feminine archetype toxic femininity yeah that's a great way to think about it i, I suppose that's not a thing we'll get into that it, it is a thing that is the archetype and that is what makes it a thing um, that's a whole other podcast. It is. I need. I, podcast. I need. I need a bell. <laughs> I need a bell to ring. Bias. Uh, bias alert. Um, you can use that against me too, because they do the exist. bias bell. <laughs> the bias bell. bell. We need the bias bell. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's the, the the devouring mother. I mean, she basically shelters her children to the point that they are absolutely fucking useless. Uh, I cannot function in reality. Okay. She shelters them to that point. It's almost like a Munchausen thing, like a Munchausen by proxy. You know, where um, 
why were you? It's an it's an ex- I, it's an excessive, um, overly narcissistic. Whenever somebody says that children are uh, they grew up under a rock, mm-hmm. or they were sheltered as mm-hmm. children, that's a helicopter that. parent. Yeah. Yep. Same thing. See, I, I think more like snowplow parent. No, that's not. Never no. heard that one. Well, continue. I, um, I suppose a snowplow parent is kind of a subset of the helicopter parent. Um, you know, hover a helicopter hovers, just hovers overhead and keeps keeps, and then you know might do an attack run on anything that comes close, right? A a snowplow parent is one that is still watching everything, but insists on doing everything for the kid. No, see, your understanding of those, you think they're mutually exclusive, but in the popular culture, they are the same. If you look up in Webster's Dictionary... I said it was a subset of the helicopter. No, that's what the helicopter is. If you look up in the dictionary, belaboring the metaphor... Yeah. Yeah, a helicopter parent, that... that, That is exactly what they do. That stereotype uh, umbrellas over that description that you're And like you're I said, getting. that's a subset. But there, there is a distinct difference. I think you're trying to give more grace there than is needed. More, more, it's unnecessarily complicated. Yes. I, I, I agree with Kirky on that. All I can right. see why you, how, how you get to that point. But when, if somebody were At to say, hel- if somebody were to say helicopter parent, everybody knows what that means, and it includes right. the description that you gave. So if you're like, oh, if they're just watching said, them, we're like, no. <laughs> Yeah, if somebody said snowplow parent, overbearing. it would it would require an explanation. Right. <laughs> At least there's mo- movement with the snowplow instead of just hovering, is the difference. It's a subset, but... Right, but you can't just make up your own definition that goes against what everybody else knows, because then you're just adding confusion. I didn't make I agree. that up. Yeah, you pedantic yes, jackass. Yes, you did. I, I believe that you didn't make that up, but... Okay, fine, but you're you're contributing your own definition as if it's the same as what everybody else is saying, and it's not the same thing. I don't really care about all that stuff. My only point is that most people don't know what the term snowplow parent means when helicopter parent covers that already, and people know what that means. Some people have heard of snowplow and not the, not the helicopter. I would be interested to, sing across, to, to see a cross-section of people who have heard of snowplow parent but not... I've seen people in YouTube comment sections asking what a helicopter parent is and saying, is that like a snowplow? I wonder if it's a colloquial thing, right? Like people, like the South versus the North or like East versus West. Yeah, I was actually listening to, um, well, I was listening to 12 Rules today and Peterson said, um, the elephant under the rug. I was like... You mean the elephant in the room? Yeah. See, we're used same to thing, the elephant but... in the room, but it's the same thing. It means the same thing. It's just, it's just the imagery what's is funny really about ridiculous. That, <laughs> well, what's funny about that is the elephant under the rug actually, I feel like, embodies the metaphor better than elephant in the room. It could be a really big room. Could be. All I can think is, is this a standard size rug? Is it going to cover the elephant completely? Or is it just kind of like a dainty little hat? <laughs> like, <laughs> like a doily? Yes. Um, and no, I'm like, no, it's a how to rug. Obviously. <laughs> a what now? A how to rug. How to rug? You don't know what a how to is. No. It's when you think about, you know, like elephants in colonial India and they had those boxes oh, on yeah. that's a how to. Oh, okay. And they had that's a, good to know. They had a rug underneath it. It's a how to rug. Now when I watch Aladdin I'll know what the hell to call that thing. 
I can show you the world. No, that's just a regular carpet. Oh. This is the Prince Ali song when he comes in on the elephant. Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali, blah, blah. Yeah, see? Thank you. And scene. Anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so you've got the devouring mother. What's the, uh, the positive? Thing? The nurturing oh, mother. The nurturing mother. Yeah. So a mom. <laughs> a good mom. A good mom. Yes. Hey, you know what's funny? After I said Devouring Mother and how I said that it sounds a lot like Munchausen by Proxy, guess what showed up on the website? <laughs> yeah, Munchausen, Munchausen by, by proxy. proxy. So I go, hmm. Yeah, Munchausen yeah. syndrome is one of those like, really messed up things, man. Oh, yeah. Especially by proxy. And I think, you know, we're not going to go into that usually is particulars here, but sure. we might know someone who does that. I want to make sure that we get the details right. Because you don't hear nearly as much about the nurturing mother as you do about the, the, the devouring mother. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, one's more terrifying. You'll remember the terrifying one. True. Versus the positive figure. Our brains are... Yeah, like how you just said, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you mean mom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that seems innocuous because like, well, we know what that is. like, And that's actually kind of funny coming from Kirky. It is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That was not a personal hit. Don't it? worry, she doesn't know what a podcast is. <laughs> She's like, is that like radio for hipsters? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's an app description. Um, it, it is so, the okay. So the nurturing mother archetype represents yeah. the universal idealized version of motherhood. The archetypal mother is either depicted as the nurturing, selfless care who protects and provides for their offspring at any cost to themselves, i.e. A woman in film who is a mother. That's a bad definition. Yeah. Okay, that's borderline. That's, that's not you're in a horror into, film. You're dipping into a devouring mother at that point. Yeah, at any cost. That's devouring mother. Anytime you hear at any cost, that's... No, at any cost be an to instant... themselves. No, that's the... No, you didn't hear it right. Hmm. The archetypal mother is either depicted as the nurturing, selfless carer who protects and provides for their offspring at any cost to themselves. Okay, not we didn't to let her get others. That we didn't. We, we didn't. No, that's on I, us. No, okay, that's that fair is enough. the mother literally willing to sacrifice herself for the well-being of her child. That is what most of us consider a mom. Look up some more definitions of that because I feel like that applies to both parents, both parent archetypes. A devouring one, though, is willing to take out the child too as collateral. Well, the difference between the devouring and the nurturing mother is where the emphasis lies, what's important to them, because the, for the devouring mother, it's... It's it's altruism, for sure. Because nurturing... Well, for the devouring mother, it's not altruism. No, 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 it's... I meant for the nurturing one. That, that's yeah. the difference. Like, one's inherently, like, just it's for the, the good of the world. One yeah. is for selfish reasons. Yeah, that's the trick. Yes, it's, it's the, yes. Sh the, the devouring mother has excuses that make her feel like she's being altruistic, but it's it's actually particularly selfish, um, so, detrimentally selfish. So what are the uh, the masculine archetypes in that? Oh, you've got the Wait, you benevolent. have a dad? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got y'all back. I did up until that's about, fair. I did up until six years ago. <laughs> that's fair. She got a, well. She got you back. Huh? <laughs> I still, I am still relatively unscathed. I don't even know what I earned. Everybody gets one. For those in the audience, um, Garrett's dad passed away several years ago, so there was a, that was the joke. Uh, sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> not with that shit-eating grin. <laughs> anyway, 
the positive, well, not necessarily positive, but the king, the the, the, the father figure side of that is, you know, you got your uh, benevolent king and your tyrannical king, right? Okay, I was going to, I figured tyrant was in there somewhere. Yeah, benevolent king, tyrant king, tyrannical king, same thing. So, you know, your benevolent king is the one who understands that order is necessary, but also um, there needs to be some element of... Uh, there needs to be some understanding that chaos, that an ex exploration of chaos or what's beyond the, huh, what's beyond order is a necessary part of having a balanced society, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you have the tyrannical king, which is, I mean, that can just be boiled down to too much order. Right? I mean, the order, the order becomes so pervasive in society that it, it, it's uh, oppressive. Stalin. I mean, if you want a real-world exa real example of someone that embodies the tyrannical king or tyrannical father archetype, it's Stalin. Pretty much, period. Okay. And um, according to Psychology Today, which so, is the best uh, description I can get for a paternal archetype, They've been pretty good from um, what I've seen. Of is, it says, in classic Jungian terms, the mother archetype is characterized by nurturing, containing, and generative qualities, while the father archetype is assumed to be a more active and aggressive principle dom dominated by intellect and will. Yeah. Rationality is generally associated with the, 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 the okay. father archetype. So I, I was going to, and then I did it. That's why that happened. Mm. Was the, you know, we were talking about... Um, mother archetypes and then I said masculine not necessarily paternal mm. archetypes. Yeah, that is an, I guess an important distinction to yes. make. Yeah. And these are like archetypically masculine and feminine so that's not the same thing as saying that men are this way and women are this way. Yeah, mm. so it follows up by saying this duality which current gender issues may question is nonetheless reflected in our myths and languages. Yeah. And and when you when you boil it down to personality traits, it does. Now this isn't an, an ultimate or or um, absolute judgment as far as what's masculine and what's feminine among people, but men do tend toward certain um, personality traits, and women tend toward per certain personality traits right. as well. I'm and that's by no that's by no means exhaustive, but um, I think it's generally, if I'm not mistaken, it's generally 60% is a fairly safe 60, 60 to 65% of the population, uh, of the male population, follows along the general male archetype, or archetypical uh, personality traits, and then same thing for women. I will rule this household or see it burn to ash before me. <laughs> there is tyranny. Huh? Oh, hey! <laughs> uh, we can edit that out. <laughs> Cut and post. Say what you gotta say, baby. Where am I saying this? Oh, they're in there next to next to drive. <laughs> it's interesting because on the same website it talks about like there really isn't like a defined father archetype, just kind of like a generalized, broad thing, like of being the provider, being the the um like you know, you Giver get the, of laws. the yeah, you get like the nature, if you <laughs> will, the nature nurture thing. You get the nurture thing from the mother and the nature thing from the father. And it's very, very generalized. However, it does have a very good understanding of a like a anti father archetype or a um, devouring paternal archetype, and like um, <laughs> uh, the ones that are violent, destructive, and antisocial aspects 
of, mm. of fathers. Um, it gives great examples such as Jim Jones and Charles Manson or David Koresh, and also Hitler, of course. Um, I, was, I was really hooked. I think this is the first time we've mentioned Hitler on the podcast. I, I only took three episodes? That's Five. <laughs> oh, yeah. took five. Five? five yeah. Oh, I my think goodness. this is the first time we've mentioned Hitler. I, 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 think. I think we need to keep a tally going. We should. <laughs> How Hitler many count? times is Hitler brought up in this podcast? Yes. We're starting the Hitler count. We're starting the Hitler count. <laughs> on this day. Congratulations, ladies night. and gentlemen. You are You are listening to history being made right now. The Hitler count. The Hitler count. And is this like a non-historical reference? This is a non-historical. This exactly. Is, is that what it's going to be? We're keeping yeah. track of how many times Hitler is brought up in a non-historical manner. No, like, just no, just, just in general. Period. And this day in 1943, <laughs> I'll get rid of that ridiculous voice, but I do like it for historical topography. Not topography. <laughs> topography. What is this stenography? <laughs> stenography. <laughs> topography. I knew what you stenography. Were going for with the tiny it's keyboard. the same. Yes, yeah, so I didn't know this until this week. Total tangent, but apparently not every single letter is like on a button. Yeah, no, like no, there yeah. are like ways to like. I was like, how do they possibly write they what we're saying language. that quickly? And they, I was yeah, like, they literally learn their own st- and I go, stenographer language. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that is the sound of my mind blowing. Listeners at home, there you yeah, go. It's, it's really interesting. Who knew stenographers? <laughs> interesting. Look at us. <laughs> Who would have thought? Not me. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Garrett is aptly mimicking a stenographer that is about to go ape shit on the courtroom. <laughs> Two stenographers. Dueling stenographers. <laughs> Dueling stenographers. That's a good idea. That. I think we should edit that out. That is one thing that I miss. This is a totally fucking derailed off topic. It's that is totally one thing fine. that I miss about the new Animaniacs is that they don't have the good idea, bad idea sketch. I, I love loved that. that sketch. Yeah. It's time for another favorite. good idea, bad idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put down dueling stenographers <laughs> as a... Ad? As, as a... Oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Now it's now it's not no longer meta because it's on the podcast. Recording. No, which is why I'm saying we should edit that out. Yeah, but then I got to listen to the whole thing. Okay, fine. Now I'm gonna have to edit it out anyway. Are we breaking right. the fourth wall twice? It's we're, like sixteen. We're, yeah, walls. we're adception here. Okay, fine. Adception. They're not supposed to know. They're not supposed to know, Garrett. They don't know that and we the know we that they about know. This, the more you got to go through it. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> At least David appreciates my friend's reference. I missed it. I said, they don't know that we know oh, yeah. that they know. <laughs> that was the best several episodes of Friends. Now, now moving on. Yes. Yes, the stenographer has begun to retire. We're talking about benevolent fathers and tyrannical fathers and psychology and so forth. Host? Oh, I, I just wanted to see how much further down the rabbit hole we go on the... Don't test me on the rabbit hole. <laughs> There will be a test on the rep. <laughs> is it multiple choice or a personal Short essay? Answer. Short answer. <laughs> Short answer. Oh, I'm, I'm boned. <laughs> I'm better with multiple choice or essay. Yeah, you don't have enough time to write a short letter. Yeah. Um, I wonder if the reason why we don't have a paternal archetype is because for years there was a quote-unquote design structural um, gender roles assigned to Western society, and now that things are starting to shift, the men can be more 
The men can be studied from afar. Oh no, these archetypes have existed for thousands of years. That's true. Well, I I think, and they've been they've been embodied in ancient mythology for thousands of years. That's true. I I think what why there isn't a specific paternal one is because the uh, what do we mean by specific paternal one? What are we talking about here? Because there is like like there are like well written books and like actual like defined attributes of maternal archetypes, but there really aren't any defined paternal archetypes. Yes, there are. I'm looking it up right now. Very so much so. Okay. It's all arbitrary. A lot of them actually have to do with the more along the lines of the benevolent king. The the orderly the orderly king, the 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 king as society. I mean, that's that's Well, the, what I was about to say was you have the the maternal uh, feminine ones which seem to focus on, you know, devouring or um, nurturing mother. Yeah. But and then the, the the masculine ones, the paternal ones that we found, they, the thing, the, the attributes that would make a good father would also make a good ruler. Yeah. So, kind of summing up what she's going into without the bias. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry. What what, what are the, what's the issue we're having here? Well, um. Because it sounded like the issue was that we didn't think that they were um, defined. Paternal archetypes, but there no, are. No, there, there are. I'm not saying there aren't. Um, but it, it kind of has to do with that, you know, the, that that hierarchy that is thousands of years old, where a female ruler is a kind of an oddity. Yeah. In, in Western society and in, civilization. Even in most as far as I know, in Eastern society as well. I mean, as far as I know. Yeah. What are some societies in history that have had that have been traditionally ma- matriarchal? Um, Polynesian. Yeah, the only ones that I can think and, of. And um, there's a few nations or tribes in Africa. I think this is going to sound really, really awful, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Any successful ones? Yeah. Okay. If not uprooted by colonialism. Well, it defi- yes. depends on your definition of a success. Right, like what? what uh, do you give me defi- an example. What do you define as success? Okay, the those Polynesian tribes that that have uh, uh, matriarchal systems, mm. they have existed for thousands and thousands of years, relatively unchanged. Okay, so that's that's a good metric. For that's success. a good me- metric for success. Yeah. Um, now, when they they run up against other civilizations in like a competitive sense, no. No, not so much. So there's an issue of stagnancy? I'd, yeah, you could say there's an issue of stagnancy. And, and in fact, actually, like, um, regression on the technological scale. Do we think that's because that it's a matriarchy? No, I don't think that's necessarily because it's a matriarchal society. If anything, I'd say it has to do more with isolation mm. and lack of trade. If you look at areas that have been isolated, we have evidence that they had certain tech, and then lost it over time. For instance, um, some of those Polynesian tribes. Mm. We find in archaeological digs that they used to fletch their arrows. They used to have fletchings on their arrows. This is a good thing for an arrow to have. It stabilizes it. It allows you to shoot farther. But by the time, uh, even by the 1700s, 1800s, Europeans are teaching them to do that when they get shipwrecked. Because they'd never heard of fletchings before, mm. even though they at some point they had them. Right. Just as an example. Okay. 
Well, I guess the challenge then is maybe the, I, I don't know. Maybe the challenge, even though this isn't really specifically on topic, but we're kind of there, I guess. What what of this are we laying at the feet of matriarchy? I'm not laying anything at the feet of matriarchy. Yeah, they see that's my I, question. Is the, uh, you asked about success? Would these things still happen if it was a patriarchy? Is the question? What, what, what can we lay those things at the feet of? I don't. We don't know, right? I don't know. You asked about success. I gave right. you a few different measures. In some, yes, very successful. In others, not so much. Right. Okay. To, and two examples of not success versus one example of that you could define as success. Mm -hmm. That's how that happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only one I can think of that is considered somewhat of a matriarchy now, only vaguely, but wasn't always that. I mean, it was a, clearly a monarchy and a patriarchy, was, is England. But their matriarchal tendencies at this point are pretty much superficial. Um, see, this is where we're going to get into my next podcast topic. That has to do less with, you know... A dedicated matriarchy versus mm -hmm. um, primogeniture, I think is the the primogeniture? word. Primogeniture. Uh, yeah, the first first offspring. That that's just how that went. Mm. Some some monarchies have um, male only primogeniture, firstborn, mm -hmm. where a woman cannot ascend to the throne. Right, and England had that. For a certain amount of they time. Had, when did that change again? They had male favorability, but not necessarily male only. I thought it was male only up to a certain point. Mm, I'm sure it was at some point, but I'm not a big. I don't. Or maybe know. it was. Maybe it was. Maybe it was male or female up to a certain point, and then they made it male only for a certain amount of time, and then they went back. I feel like I remember reading an article about that, but I don't remember the details. We're, of we're, it. We'd have to fact check that one, and we'll yeah. get into that one in another podcast. Yeah. That, yeah. Um. There are several examples, by the way, of matriarchal societies still in today. They are often small and run by um, indigenous people of whatever continent they're in. Mm -hmm. But um, some good examples are there actually is a small place in China, believe it or not. In China? Okay. I know, of all places. That is surprising. Uh, the Mos Mosuo, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing really that. It's run by the CCP. It's in the Himalayan mountains. So it's kind of like on that, it's in that kind of in the Tibet area, so it could be sketch, in terms of... <laughs> no, no. And all of our Tibetan I listeners are like, you son China, of a bitch. Whether China pays attention to them or not, I guess is what I meant. If um, it's Tibetan, they're paying attention. That's true. I regret that statement. There's also Papua New Guinea and um, uh, another place in Indonesia. They ate people. A place in Kenya, um, a place in India, and Costa Rica. Oh, ho, devouring mother. <laughs> And Ghana, of course. Actually, it was witches. Sometimes it's amazing to me that Kirk even agreed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just like blaze right past your blade and shit. That's probably a good decision. <laughs> um, well, here's the problem that we run into with stuff like this. Now we're getting somewhat political, but it's like you know, it, it would be lazy to look at examples like that and lay those problems at the feet of having a matriarchy. You don't know if that's the, no. the situation and or not. Uh, anyone You'd who, have to dive a lot deeper to know what the situation is with something like that. Anyone who would lay that at the feet of matriarchy, uh, you better have some damn good reasons and research on that one. Mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing it out of hand, but I'm almost dismissing it out of hand. Yeah. 
I won't dismiss it out of hand, but uh, you do have to have... You're going to have to convince me of that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, matriarchal societies are so small due to how the world views them, but also because of... Um, Go on. Well, a lot of it comes down to when their populations were larger, there probably was a more structure to it. And then because of various reasons like colonialism, climate change, um, wars, what what have you, they've had to relocate and kind of restructure their own society. So, I mean, do we think that we might be able to apply at least some amount of that to the fact that that by and large men tend to be more aggressive so patriarchal societies are going to be more invasive no you don't think so Mm-mm. Hmm. no um and the reason i'd say that is um if you look at the history of famous european female monarchs mm. they tended to start more wars than their male counterparts at the time why is that i don't know hmm. oh i do Go on. Oh. I'm not going to make the joke. I'll let you continue. Is this about the Red Rage? No, <laughs> it's not. And there's the joke. Misogyny continue. aside, it's because... Um, I'm just generalizing. I think it's because women, when we know what's right, know what to do, how to fix a problem, and we come up to an obstacle, we're like, well, fuck that. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to accomplish what I need. Whether society said we could or not, if a woman really wanted to do something, she's going to do it. So, I think that's why there's more wars. You don't agree with me? Fine, fuck you. I'll take what <laughs> you may not win, but it doesn't mean she's not ready to throw hands. Okay. So, women don't like reason be damned. Women don't like being told what to do. And women also like to handle conflict head on. So, it seems like if you want to avoid wars, uh, handing a woman the keys to the kingdom is not a good idea. <laughs> um, I wonder if the I, problem that you run into, I suppose, if I, we're getting I'm, into this, is can they be reasoned with? Well, of course. I think I'm just generalizing, to be honest. And, not think, and you didn't I know, specify. I know, I know, I generalize I'm, regardless. Yeah. I mean, we can't. For sure. I think we're all taking as a given that nothing that we say on this topic is an absolute as far as gender is con- well. Well, gender as far as social- sex is concerned. Okay. As far as sex is concerned, that, that that's a completely different. That podcast. inhale right there was him about to say, "Shut the fuck up." We're saving that for a whole other podcast. Shut up. I'm glad that you qualified it with that reason because that actually is the reason. It's <laughs> not because I don't necessarily believe it. No, it's because that is a whole I, other. I know topic. what that is. That's a, that's a don't you dare do that. <laughs> Okay. No, that's a rabbit hole that that, that is re- another so, podcast requires. I, I, what started this whole thing is the the uh, matriarchal or matronly um, archetypes archetypes don't necessarily reflect good leadership. Well, no, yeah, that, that's true, but that's, to the same extent that masculine ones don't also. Well, right. that's why you have the tyrannical king, right? That's why you, that's well, where you get your Stalin. The, the nurturing mother, there's not much in there that shows well, here's, leadership. The benevolent king, by, by definition, is a leader who's good. True, but here's the connection. Reason is the connection, right? Rationality is the connection between those two archetypes, the, the, the benevolent king and the nurturing mother. And here's where that connection is made. With the benevolent king, this is a king who understands that you can't be oppressively orderly. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to allow 
you need to allow chaos and to a certain extent. People need to be able to learn. Society needs to be able to change over time because new things happen. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to be able to account for that. That's the benevolent king. The nurturing mother has that exact same um, bent to her because what the nurturing mother allows for is the children need to be able to indulge in danger. Right? They need to be able to go out and do dangerous things so they learn. It's the exact same thing. It's it's we we need to have an allotment for the chaos of uh, of reality, right? I mean, you can't grow at all if you don't allow for that. Mm-hmm. There has to be that allowance for exploration. That's where those two archetypes connect. Yeah. Okay. It just that, that's good. Garrett's retort. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I win again. <laughs> I didn't know we were fighting. <laughs> I only do that so I get that response out of you. One of these days, I'm going to have one of my wasters. <laughs> Waiting to bludgeon me with it. Yeah. So we're going to take uh, one more break, and then we're going to bring it back in. I have never lied to you. Some saw a madman. Let God arise. Others... Saw a prophecy. Let God arise, and his enemies be scattered. A tale of velvet betrayal. Let God arise from the earth. This Thanksgiving. They're going to shoot that pilot. A massacre. But if there are children left, we'll. We're going to have them butchered. Be. You'll be sorry. Felt. You'll be sorry. Don't fail to follow my advice. Hurry, my children. Directed by Oliver Stone. Drink, my children. In association with Kraft Holdings. Drink to God. Muppets. Drink. Take. Drink. Jonestown. And welcome back. So, into the podcast, let's try and bring everything back together. We asked a lot of interesting questions, at least we think they're interesting. We hope you do too. And uh, I I think we we answered what archetypes are, how they're used in both literary and psychological sense, at least. To an extent, I mean, we could go way deeper into how they're used. And we, we hardly even touched on the, the psychological archetypes. I, I mean, we got fixated on two. Yeah. Well, they're really, <laughs> Four, really important technically. ones, yeah. Um, so did, did we learn anything? Uh, I mean... Oh, in true Dave fashion, I did more talking than learning, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> It just happened to be a topic that that, that I that I, I mean I wouldn't say I'm knowledgeable about it, but I've read a decent amount about it, and I like talking about it and learning more about it. Mm-hmm. I like to have conversations about it. Um, it definitely could have been a longer conversation. We could uh, have gone we could have gone far deeper down that rabbit hole. Yeah, we we could have had a six hour discussion on on each one of these things, parsing out <laughs> the, the the little straws. 
I'm sure. But we we did talk about kind of how they're used, uh, and that's a very broad question on that one because each one's used in a different way in each story. Well, maybe we can consolidate that a little bit and talk about it just a little bit more because we do have a little bit of time mm -hmm. as far as how they're used. I mean, liter as far as literature goes or, or, or uh, television or, or film, those kinds of storytelling in general. Mm -hmm. um, generally, archetypes, one of two things happen. Either you, you have the archetypes in mind and you're writing toward the archetypes, which I actually think is the worst way to go about it. Mm -hmm. Or you come up with, this is the way I teach it anyway, you come up with an idea for a type of character that you want. You iron out the things that you know about that character. And then you use the archetype to fill out the rest. And then you look the at the, to a certain extent, you look at the archetypes, you look at uh, the, you know, the ocean, the big five personality traits, you just sort of use those as a guide to understand that character better. You're discovering that character just as much as you're creating that character. Mm. Right? So you start with what you have in your mind first. And then you use those other things as a guide. That way you're not writing towards something. Right. Let the character play itself out. And, you know, the, the big five personality uh, wheel and, and the archetypes are going to help you understand that character better. So I, I think that's, as far as a practical use for the archetypes, um, if you're not interested in going into the, the philosophy of it and how it has an effect on people and society and all those kinds of things, and you're more interested in storytelling, that's the way I would, I, I would say to go about it. it. The practical method is to... You always start with an idea for a character. You don't, always, you don't start with, oh, well, I want this character to be a caregiver. Like, nobody starts a story like that. If they really, do, it's they not shouldn't. a good story. <laughs> you know, I'm sure people do. Yeah, it's probably not good, though. Usually they end up straying from it so much and trying... You don't want to constrain yourself, I guess, is the thing. You don't mm -hmm. want to constrain yourself. You want to use those guidelines as... as um, well, guidelines. <laughs> guidelines as guideposts, right? So, yeah, I think maybe that's just to sort of consolidate that particular question into how can we use them pragmatically, which I think is what most people would want to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, how, how does an understanding of archetypes help you in your day-to-day -day life? Oh, that's a different question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have uh, nine minutes. <laughs> as far as how they help you in your day-to-day -day life? I mean, if you connect archetypes to the personality wheel, they can help you quite a bit. Because you can look at people, and you don't want to stereotype them, but... I'm saying this as a practical matter from practice... Once you understand the big five personality wheel and the archetypes, if you can manage to sort of cram all that in your brain at the same time, when you meet new people, you start to build that character description of them. Mm -hmm. Right, And I don't know if this is the same thing for everybody, but for me, if somebody embodies the archetype too much and the stereotypes too much, I lose interest. I hate okay. to say that, but I lose interest in that person because they become predictable. It's like when you see a character at a television show or a movie, it's like, well, I know what that character is, who that character is, what stereotype they embody, and I no longer give a shit. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It depends on if you know that character and you might lose interest in them, but in the right situation and they show up, it's like, oh, yeah, it's about to go down. <laughs> That's fair. But <laughs> then they're boiled down to their stereotype, and their stereotype is what makes them useful in that moment. Mm -hmm. So you might have that reaction, but that character on screen for any more of a period than that, you don't care. 
All you care about is how useful their stereotype is in that moment. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think as far as being able to help you in real life, it can be very, very useful because it allows you to... You don't want to assume that you already know how a person is going to behave, but everyone judges constantly. Mm -hmm. We have this thing about how judging is a bad thing, but it's like, yeah, good luck trying to not do that. Everybody judges all the time, and it's important. It's how you keep yourself out of danger. <laughs> so you judge constantly. Right. If you meet somebody new, you start looking at all of those little patterns that you're used to seeing in character archetypes or you're used to seeing in stereotypes. You're looking for those things because people are pattern recognition creatures. That's what they do. And so when you meet somebody new, when you start seeing those patterns, you start building a personality of them in your head. That's not an accurate, a one-to-one -one accurate description or perception of that person, but it gives you something to work within. It gives you something that allows you to predict what they might do next. I was... I was thinking um, less social situation, more can you use these archetypes to kind of analyze your yourself? Oh, yeah. Talk about that, because I talked a lot. <laughs> well, I just asked the question, man. Oh, you? Oh, I, it wasn't in the form of a question, all right? Can you use these to identify things in yourself? That's what I said. Yes, very, very, okay. very much so. Mm -hmm. Particularly if you can connect them to the Big Five personality. If you can if you can find those archetypes like we were talking about, or even use the alignment chart. I mean, that's a more general version of it. But you can the it. alignment chart is, is far easier to you know, plug yourself into, but it's also yeah. far harder to stick to, and I don't even think you'd want to. Most people try not to. Right. I mean... For one, being lawful good all the time is kind of boring. Yeah, it's <laughs> really you need, boring. You need to make allowance for chaos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you go from lawful good to lawful evil real quick. Well, I mean, do you have any specific questions about how you might be able to utilize it? Well, I, what was popping through my head was, you know, going back to the, the psychological archetypes from Jung, um, the um, benevolent king versus the tyrannical king, you know, being able to identify, all right, am I acting on this, trying to be benevolent, or am I just doing this for control's sake? Yeah, I mean... That that would be how I would just kind of jump to trying to use that particular um, archetype paradigm yeah, I, myself. Yeah, it's that question of am I being overbearing or am I being reasonable, right? I mean, that's the question that you're running into. And I think maybe the way that you could identify whether or not which one of those things you're doing is, okay, look at the way that people around you are reacting to those things. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're living in a situation, it's not always perfect, but it, it's a good start, at the very least, if you're living in a family situation and you notice that your wife and your kids are, are starting to treat you like you're, like maybe they're walking on eggshells around you, mm -hmm. then that's a pretty good indicator, I would say, that you're bordering on or have overstepped the boundaries of tyrannical king, I guess. See, I think an easier one to go with, at least this is what I try to do in my own life, whether it works or not, I don't really know, but this is what I try to do, is instead of judging reactions from those around me, stepping back, looking, okay, if I were to watch someone do that, how would I judge them? Golden rule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's been far more help to me than trying to go off other people's reactions because 
I can't judge people that well. I'm a bad judge of character, and I know it. Stepping into other people's shoes is... I think you're right on that. I think that's the most effective way to sort of view... Once you understand the archetypes, that's a, more, that's a better way to view whether or not you're embodying one of them negatively or positively. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think you're right about that. Well, I think we're going to wrap that one up right there. So, uh... Kirky, you got anything? I learned that a plot is almost impossible to create without at least one archetype. Because it would be very boring. You can create a plot with a theme. You can create, yes, but it wouldn't be memorable, interesting, or... You wouldn't care well, about you, the characters no. that much, right? I guess you can start a plot with a theme. Oh, you sure. Can't, but in the, I guess the final analysis of, of the plot, there sure. has to be there has to be archetypes. Mm-hmm. Even if they're emergent, you're gonna you're gonna discover them if you didn't actively create them. Mm-hmm. And I would say you've written a better you've written a better story if you discovered them rather than created them. You're more of a discovery writer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. um... Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have a wonderful interval between the ne- this episode and the next one you watch. We have no idea what order we're going to put these in when we finally release them, so, you know, that's going to be fun. Um, please tune in next time where we uh, will discuss how to eat a volcano. One bite at a time. <laughs>